are the Ballmasters. Your sports news podcast on Unbenched. Breaking the glass ceiling through sports. Welcome back to Ballbusters. This is episode three. We're just flying through this, aren't we? I'm Casey Dobson, your host. I'm joined as usual by Karina, Christina, and Dua. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, y'all. It was an adventure to get here, but all four of us are here. I'm going to break down some sports news. Christina has a super fun overtime segment that's a follow-up on our first episode. So make sure you stay tuned until the end for that. Got some NBA trade deadline updates, some NHL trade deadline speculation. And we're going to lead off with some NFL news. It was made official a couple of days ago by the time this goes out that the NFL will be playing 17 game seasons. So this is up from the 16 games that have been happening for seemingly ever at this point. This kind of move is going to affect the preseason in terms of there being one less preseason game. So now teams are going to be playing three preseason games, which I think everyone can agree is pretty much a good thing. There is probably the highest percentage of injury within the preseason just because people are coming off, they're fresh. So one last game isn't the end of the world. And that week where the fourth preseason game would be isn't going to be taken up by this extra regular season game. Yes, do they only have 17 games, but also think about football, what you're putting your body through week in, week out. I'm just so confused because you... sports we'll get into that trust me we'll get into that so instead of moving the regular season up one week into that gap where the last preseason game would be they're actually going to leave that as a rest week so the in total the nfl regular season will be one week longer than usual and they are giving teams that extra little rest period which again probably isn't harming anyone. People probably appreciate that, especially preseason. You want to recoup and make sure you have all your plans solid before you actually kick off the season. So these added games, it's a little bit of a weird kind of timing situation on the NFL's part because the schedule and the opponents had all already been announced. At least the opponents had. So they're now coming in and adding an opponent. So everyone was kind of wondering, well, where did you pull this extra matchup from? They did this by matching up teams from opposite conferences who finished at the same rank. So an example would be the Patriots are now playing the Cowboys as that 17th game because they both finished third in the AFC and NFC East, respectively. That's kind of the format that they've taken. So we're going to see a lot of really interesting matchups. For example, I know Green Bay and Kansas City are going to play each other. But it's also probably going to create a lot of garbage bowl games. If you think of teams that finished last in their divisions, we are looking at you, New York Jets, and I don't even remember who finished last in the NFC last season. They were all a train wreck. And then I think also like Denver is playing Detroit, which nobody asked for. So that's how we're getting those extra matchups. People don't like this. And there are multiple reasons why. Firstly, and I think this is probably what Dua was alluding to before, This takes away the home and away fairness. You look at literally every other league, they play an even amount of games. So teams can have same amount of home games, same amount of away games. And especially in a sport like football, where home field advantage is so pronounced because of crowd noise when you're on offense versus defense. It is a sport where you can't really say that home field like doesn't have an effect in terms of the gameplay, let alone travel. So every other league has their even games to avoid this. The NFL said that to ensure 
quote unquote fairness, the conferences will alternate having the extra game at home. So this season, all of the AFC teams are going to get that home game. So anyone in the AFC will be playing nine home games and eight away games. And next season, it's going to be the NFC getting nine home games and eight away games. That's kind of how they've worked around that. Whether or not that's actually fair, do we have thoughts on on that point so far? I just don't think it's fair in general. I also feel like the Bills are going to be okay just because the NFC is so much weaker than the AFC, in my opinion. I mean, the Bills, their extra matchup falls against Washington. So okay. I don't really think y'all have yeah. too much to be There's sweating about, to worry about The other reason that people have an issue with this, and this is probably the more pronounced reason as to why people and players. So when I say people, I'm, I'm not literally just talking about fans. In all of the articles I've read, everything that I've seen, I have not seen a single player or analyst, figure, coach who is in favor of extending the season. It's just a universally disliked option. And if you're wondering, well, if everyone hates it, why are we doing it? The owners like it and the league likes it because it's more money. The NFL has proven time and time again, they are a bottom line business. They don't really care how they want to make their money as long as they make it. And this is even shown through the fact that players aren't getting a raise. They're being paid the same amount that all of their contracts would have stated for the 16 games, except now instead of being paid over the span of 17 weeks, they're being paid over the span of 18 weeks. So there's no extra money in it for the players. Sure, the NFL has come out and said, oh, well, they share the profits of the league, so they do get more money. The fact of the matter is their salaries are not changing, and yet you're asking them to do more work, which in any other work situation, I feel like is illegal. (laughs) So yeah, safety is a big thing. And I mean, anyone who pays attention to the major sports in general probably has an inkling of an idea that the NFL and concussions are a very, very contested subject, to say the least. We don't know the full extent to what concussions can do to you long term. That study hasn't been around long enough, although we have seen it on players like Aaron Hernandez after he committed suicide in his cell. They did examine his brain and there was a hole in the front of his brain. It wasn't put there naturally. That was an amalgamation of all of his concussions, all of his head trauma. And sure, there's no excuse for murder, but when you find out that the hole in your brain is in the part of your brain that controls impulse and decision-making, you kind of have to draw a correlation. I'm not, again, I'm not excusing Aaron Hernandez for committing murder, please. Nobody construe it that way. I'm just saying our brains are not made to have holes in them. I'm not a neuroscience major. So maybe I'm, maybe this is like the next stage of humanity and just no one's told me yet. But as far as I'm aware, you want your brain to be like a solid entity. Casey trying to explain how a brain should be. (laughs) It's like media math, but with neuroscience. We're media majors. We can't do math, but we also can't science. There's absolutely no way I'm the person that should be having this conversation. However, I will say that I've had six concussions. So if anyone is it to be talking about like the impacts... Trust me, I've had them explained to me one too many times. This kind of scare me out of participating in sports, but that's another conversation. So it's a non-disputable fact that players who go out and play every single game are putting their bodies through significant risks to their long-term health. And obviously because they're playing, they think it's worth it or they wouldn't be playing. We can all agree on that. But that doesn't take away from the fact that a lot of these guys probably still don't know the extent to which they could be causing themselves 
harm in the future. Because as I said before, the research isn't all there yet. So adding an extra game, all it does really from an outsider's perspective is contribute to the narrative that the NFL is tone deaf and completely disregards the issues and the seriousness surrounding concussions. And Brian Billick, who was part of the Ravens front office a couple of years ago, he now works as an analyst. He called out that exact point, reminding us that we're always hearing owners harp on safety. And yet now we're having to listen to them justify adding a game. I think the fact that some players, when they're starting out, don't have the luxury to miss the game or to not play because this is their livelihood. The fact that the NFL doesn't give the players support and time to heal with concussions and the fact that they bank on these players being dependent on the league is insane to me. And now that they're adding another game and putting one, the players in more danger and two, not supporting them financially for this game while they're putting their safety and health at risk is just appalling. Absolutely. And I think on the note of the NFL and concussions, um, something that I truly believe every football fan should read is there's this book called Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. And it's all about how to reconcile the issues that are inherent to sport and your love for them. And the first chapter is all about loving the NFL when we know what it does to players' brains. And as someone who has gone through concussions, as someone who loves football, reading that was so nice because it was just, I was like, oh, I'm not like, I'm not alone in trying to ignore this like horrible way that they're handling this massive issue. Ballbusters reading recommendation, everybody please go read that book. It also talks about loving your favorite athlete after a doping scandal, talks about loving a team with a racist name. It's incredible. It's so, so well-written. And yeah, that first chapter being all about the NFL and concussions, I was like, yeah, this is my language. So that was the concern with the NFL and safety. So, I mean, obviously we'll see how this plays out, but it's definitely a decision that I don't see the NFL going back on, especially when they came out and talked about their plans for international games and then how these 17 games are going to impact and help the way that they do this. So they've come out and said that they guarantee that as of 2022, each team will play an international game once every eight years, which is a large span, but keep in mind there are 32 NFL teams, so it takes a while to work through. Currently, they are looking at hosting games in Canada, the UK, and they've already been to the UK multiple times, as well as the rest of Europe, Mexico, which... I don't know if the game ever actually went down in Mexico because there was safety concerns around the first time it was supposed to happen and South America. So the league is saying that these international games, they're going to be doing it with up to four neutral site games per season is how I'm understanding it, which essentially means that 17th game will be a neutral site. So it's not going to be home or away for either team, which is something they haven't had the option to do before. Whereas in the past, when they've gone abroad, teams have had to have one of those count as their home games. So for example, Jacksonville, when they played in London, that for them was a home game. So they had one less game in Florida. The NFL is still saying that that's going to be an option that the teams can volunteer to play home games internationally as they've done in the past. But adding this game allows the option to not essentially penalize teams for playing abroad. And I say penalize because 
you look at the teams that have a history of playing those international games, it's teams that have consistently struggled to sell out their home stadiums. At least the teams that are getting those games as their home games. So teams that are in market, teams that suck, first of all, Jacksonville, we're looking at you, or teams whose home markets just aren't as strong for football, they would be the ones typically that would elect to lose out on a home game, have that international game count in the home game. To them, there was, I guess, no difference, quote unquote. But yeah, I'm excited for the possibility that they're focusing on Canada. I would love to see an NFL game up here. Obviously, we're lucky enough kind of where we are that we can drive to these games. I've driven to Boston for a game. Christina could very easily drive to Buffalo. Um, Oh my gosh, Ballbusters road trip to a Bills tailgate Buffalo Patriots game. That would be insane and so much fun. Wait, can we actually make this happen? Over the drinking. And the so jumping it, tables. Yeah. Yeah. Dua has to jump on a table. Um, yeah. So look out for a future episode of Ballbusters recorded live from a Bills tailgating party. I would love to see NFL games come up to Canada. I think they would do really well here. If the Patriots came to play in Canada, you could stick them in Saskatoon. And I'd be like, I, I'm on a plane. And that's that on that. So the other little bit of NFL news, can you tell that really nothing happened player-wise in the NFL this week? I think all teams are kind of coming down off free agency. So the other little bit of news is Roger Goodell came out and said, and this is a direct quote, all of us in the NFL want to see every one of our fans back. Football is simply not the same without fans. And we expect to have full stadiums in the upcoming season. Roger Goodell, can we have a chat? It's no secret that last year the NFL obviously saw a revenue dip because there were multiple teams that couldn't have any fans. And the final number of actual fans that went to NFL games total for the whole season across the whole league was 1.2 million, which is nothing compared to what the NFL usually does. But hey, global pandemic. And I would say that is called having your priorities in order. However, Mr. Goodell thinks this year they can start having full stadiums back. I just have some questions. Unless you're planning on moving your entire league to Australia, there's absolutely no reason for you to be aiming to have full capacity stadiums. Stop, please stop. It's not worth it. You make enough money. Krina, thoughts? It's interesting that you mentioned Australia because back in February for the Australian Open, they had full crowds and and they had like, because, you know, they're in a good state. And it was fine for a couple of days. And then they had one, I think it was one or it was less than 10 COVID cases in the country and they shut everything down. And for five days, there were no crowds. So to compare that, a country who is doing remarkably well with their COVID cases, keeping it under wraps with a country like the States, that just seems like problems right there. Yeah, I would say that. I can see Goodell's logic in wanting to have a league-wide standard. Do I agree that this is the correct standard? Absolutely not. But last season, the NFL never actually put a cap on attendance. So they had left that up to the discretion of teams and their cities and state and all of those legislations and regulations. So the NFL was essentially not involved in who could go to games last year. And as we mentioned before, Home field advantage in football is big, especially when it comes to crowd noise. So having no cap and having no league standard brought up issues in terms of that aspect because you had teams 
that when they were playing at home, they were playing in front of their staff. And then you had teams that at home were playing in front of 25 to sometimes even 50% capacity. And yes, the NFL came out and essentially gave teams recordings and they were like, you need to play this crowd noise recording at this decibel level. But that is nothing compared to having actual fans. That was the issue with that one. I agree that they should probably look at having a league standard. That league standard cannot be full capacity. Especially when you look at currently the biggest stadium in the NFL is MetLife uh, that hosts both New York teams, so the Giants and the Jets. And that has a capacity for 82,500 fans. Both teams suck. So the chances of that stadium selling out every game is rare. I'm not saying it's not going to happen, but let's be realistic here. The smallest seating capacity is Soldier Field, where the Chicago Bears play at 61,500. And again, that team, especially this year, is going to be absolute garbage. So it's probably not going to sell out. But you're looking at team Kansas City. That stadium is routinely sold out. And that one sits at about 75,000 fans. Foxborough, New England, Gillette Stadium. That one routinely very, very packed. Field of the Bills play at. What's it called now? Because they changed the name. Hi, Mark. I'm pretty sure. There. It was, they had one name and then they were like, we're done. That one, especially with the season the Bills had last year, that's going to be routinely packed. There's just no logic behind this. Yeah, I think having a league-wide cap or standard at full, definitely not. Like, I don't agree with that at all. But there's also other factors. It's, it's kind of tough because, like you said, each team, like their stadium is either sold out or it's not, depending on how good they are. That's a factor. Another factor is how bad COVID is in the city that that team plays in. There's a reason why last season, for example, some of them were playing in front of only staff and some of them were playing in front of some fans. And I think those also have to be taken into consideration. It's it's just so many factors. It's not as simple as we want all the fans to come back. Like all of these things need to be taken into consideration. Last season, when the Bills, because Bills Mafia, all of these fans are diehard fans. Every single one of Bills Mafia. And you can't dive onto a burning table and be like, I'm not a diehard exactly. fan. So yeah, Bill's Mafia, yeah, y'all, are, sudden, y'all are cracked. All the y'all time. Are yeah. And is when that the table that Cuomo... I have to jump onto? Yes. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> maybe maybe Andrew... we won't light yours on fire, but there, there's a table that needs to be. Yeah, there's crushed. a table with your name on it, Dua. When Andrew Cuomo said, okay, 6,700 fans in the stadium, let's go. They jumped on that right away pun not intended. And I know that if Roger Goodell's aiming to have everything open, then Bill's Mafia is going to jump on that too. And it's dangerous because he knows that there's a huge demand here to get these fans back in the stadium and that they are going to be willing to put their health and safety at risk to watch these games. And I think it's just really selfish of him to be asking this of everybody, knowing that these fans will do it and that given the COVID cases it's not really something that should be happening. It's also really ironic is I think the word I'm gonna choose for lack of a harsher term that Goodell is now like yep pack the stadiums no problem COVID who yet he used the Super Bowl as essentially what now looks like a PR stunt to make it seem like he did care about everything going on when they reserved a bunch of tickets for vaccinated healthcare workers, which in the moment, I think everyone, especially if you know the league and you know Goodell, you were like, okay, this is not something he's doing out of the goodness of his heart. Like there was an ulterior motive there. I think I just found it. And that's how we're going to end that discussion. So now we're going to go from the field to the ice, throw it over to Dua for some NHL news. 
All right, here we go. We got a lot on tap today. A little bit of scandalous referees, a little bit of mental health, and some trade speculation because the trade deadline is coming up. So to jump right into it, Tim Peel, who is now a former NHL referee, has been officially banned by the league from officiating any more games after he was caught saying he wanted to call a penalty against Nashville. The 53-year-old has been a member of the NHL Officials Association since 1995 and has officiated 1,433 games in his 26-year career as an NHL ref. So he was mic'd up for a game where Nashville was playing the Red Wings, and he was caught not only on the mic, but on the broadcast saying, it wasn't much, but I wanted to get a fucking penalty against Nashville early in the, and then was cut off by Victor Arvidsson getting a tripping penalty. The following day, the NHL Senior Executive Vice President of Hockey Operations, Colin Campbell said in a statement, nothing is more important than ensuring the integrity of our game. Tim Peel's conduct is in direct contradiction to the adherence to the cornerstone principle that we demand of our officials, yada, 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 yada. So basically it was a PR statement. Makeup calls have been a topic of discussion in the NHL for a long time and even in other leagues. So Matt Duchesne, who plays for the Predators, mentioned later that week in an interview that he kind of gave context to the situation. Tim Peel wasn't talking to another ref. or He was talking to the Predators bench. That makes no sense to me. So Matt Duchesne said, the crazy part is he was talking to Philip Forsberg in that clip and he told our bench that. It's really bizarre. I don't think there's a place in hockey for that. You got to call the game. I've always been frustrated when I've seen even up calls or stuff like that. If one team is earning power plays, you can't punish them because the other team is not. So makeup calls, I feel like have been made to look like a normal concept in hockey. A lot of players have spoken out about how there's no place for that in hockey. But also, I think it says a lot saying this is a veteran ref. He's been around for a really long time. Like I said, like his career is 26 years in the NHL. This was his last year coaching. And it's not his first time doing this. Even if he hasn't been caught, you don't just start calling makeup calls like 26 years into your career. So it's definitely not his first time doing this. And I don't think it would have been the last had he not gone caught. They let him go. But... It was his last year anyway. If it wasn't his last year, what do you think would have happened? Because I remember seeing this and I was like, wow, the NHL did something right. And then 20 seconds later, I saw that he was retiring at the end of the season. And this essentially had no consequence on him. And I was like, yeah, there's the NHL we all know and love. The optimist in me wants to say that the same thing would have happened. The person who's been watching the NHL for over 10 years is pretty confident in saying that the NHL would have pretended they just didn't hear this. They would have been like, what? What comment? What on our broadcast? What on our national broadcast? So yeah, I don't think this situation would have played out the same if he was in the beginning of his career or halfway through and still planning on coming back next season. Situations with crooked refs are not just limited to the NHL. They've definitely happened in other leagues and they're not going to end anytime soon but I think the way the NHL handled says a lot about how much they really care about the fairness of the game all right with that we're gonna move on to the trade deadline that's coming up the trade deadline at the time of recording is a little over a week away and I have some speculation some rumors some things to discuss here we go 
the Leafs goaltending situation. It's been rough, to put it nicely. At the time of recording, Freddie's been out with a lower body body injury for 12 days now. He's on day-to-day, but it doesn't look like he'll be coming back anytime soon. And as much as I love Freddie, even before then, he was lacking. He's usually pretty good at tracking the puck, but it's been a tough season for him. I feel like, and this is the worst insult you could give a goalie, but I feel like he was just flopping around like a fish on dry land in the net. And then Jack Campbell, who is the backup goalie, defended the Leafs in two overtime wins against the Oilers, but sat out of practice earlier this week because he was deemed unfit to return to the ice for the time being, but it hasn't been clarified for what reason. Michael Hutchinson, who is our third stringer, is in net right now, but like I said, he's a third stringer, so like we can't put all our faith in him. Currently, it seems like the goal is to get a franchise defenseman or top six forward, but I don't even know how that's possible given the salary cap situation because Maple Leafs are always doing gymnastics around the salary cap. But yeah, Kyle Dubas has made it really clear that currently both of our top goalies are on short-term injury reserves, but if one of them is moved to the long-term before April 12th, which is trade deadline, then Dubas might have to go shopping for a goalie. Okay, now I want to talk about Taylor Hall for a second because he is arguably one of the biggest names on the market right now. He's on the Buffalo roster, and we talk about Buffalo literally every single week. So I feel obligated to say right now that trading Taylor Hall might be a good start to digging themselves out of this grave that they're in right now. At the time of recording, they're on an 18-game losing streak. Here are three potential teams, I think, that Hall would fit into really well right now. First of all, we have the Boston Bruins. Gross. I won't go too much into it because while it is my job to go into it, I hate the Bruins and I hate talking about them. And quite literally just saying the word Boston makes me sick to my stomach. There are reports that the Bruins were interested in Taylor Hall before he signed with the Sabres. And honestly, not even because I hate them, but because they genuinely lack depth outside Patrice Bergeron and David Pasternak and maybe even Brad Marchand, but like that's a stretch. This might be a gamble for the Bruins, but I just think it's tough because they need all the help they can get offensively right now. We're going to move on to the complete opposite end of the spectrum now, the Toronto Maple Leafs. We completely ignore the salary cap, so this is just hypothetically speaking. I think this might be a good match. This season, we've seen Zach Hyman working the first line with Matthews and Marner, and it's producing a lot. This has created a second line with John Tavares, William Nylander, and a third spot filled by a rotating round of players, but it's currently filled by Alex Golchenyuk. I want you all to take in right now, but specifically Karina, who doesn't watch hockey, what's something you've noticed about all the men I've named so far? You've heard of all of them before. These are big guys in the league. That's something Hall has been forced to do on so many of his past teams, including his time in Buffalo and in Arizona, but especially during his time in New Jersey, he was expected to carry the Devils. 
And so he had to be the guy in so many places and lead his team. But in Toronto, he wouldn't have to be the guy. He would just have to be one of the many guys. We've got Tavares, Marner, Matthews, Nylander, just to name a few. We have a bunch of guys who lead the team or are our franchise player. Like we don't depend on one guy. We don't have one. And so that will definitely ease the pressure off of him if we see him coming to Toronto. Style of play wise, I think the Leafs have a very focused on puck possession style of play. A player with speed like Hall will fit into that mold. On that second line with Tavares and Willie, I think that would be a good fit. I would like to see this happen, but. A, I'm worried about who we would have to trade to get him. And B, I just think that with the salary cap that we consistently dance around, that's not possible. But anyways, moving on. The last team is the New York Islanders. And this may sound a little out there, but hear me out. We know the Islanders are looking for top six forward because of their captain, Anders Lee, who is out of the game with an injury for the rest of the season. So they're on the market for a forward. The Islanders are also one of the top defensive teams in the NHL. They dump pucks at a high rate and rarely make super risky plays. I feel like Taylor Hall would fit into this well because the Islanders aren't super loaded on like the left wing department. I think the only tough situation here is Matt Barzell literally commands the puck when he's on the ice, but so does Taylor Hall. And the problem lies in the fact that there is only one puck on the ice. And so it wouldn't work out too well because they would consistently be fighting each other for possession because those are two players that like to have possession literally all the time. They command the game and that could be a tricky situation. But if Taylor Hall played away from Matt Barzell, maybe on the second line, Barzell plays on the first, it could make more sense. But I think there's so much that needs to be taken into consideration with the team and the organization and seeing if that would actually fit. But I feel like maybe it could. So on to this next topic. It's kind of sensitive and it made me mad. Mental health has come up into the light in sports so much more recently. For the first time in so long, men aren't expected to just suck up their feelings. And that's amazing. And I think stories like the one I'm about to tell you bring into question how far we've really progressed. The Philadelphia Inquirer has a columnist called Sam Carcitti, who wrote an article titled Flyers goalie Carter Hart split with longtime sports psychologist. Has it affected his play? He subsequently got majorly ratioed on Twitter, and the article basically suggested that the reason Carter Hart was struggling so much on the ice is because he stopped working with his longtime sports psychologist. So before I deep dive into this, I'm going to explain what a sports psychologist is. So to put it simply, it's like a therapist for athletes, specifically catered to their sport. Their job is to help maximize the athlete's performance while also focusing on their well-being. This can include topics such as fitting into a new culture and living in a new city, or even how to tune out criticism from the media and just focus on the game. This article came out basically going through Hart's entire history with his sports psychologist and jumps to the conclusion that because he had parted ways with him earlier in the season, it completely destroyed his game. It talked about how they'd been working together since he was like 10 or 11 years old. 
the things they've said about each other to the media in the past and other people that his sports psychologist worked with. I think what Karchidi did here is by throwing analytics and an upcoming lineup of goalies, now that Hart is sitting out, he disguised a gossip tabloid piece as a piece of sport media. I get it. People want to know why someone isn't performing to the ability they've shown before. But outside of being athletes, these are human beings. And mental health speculation is not okay at all. It's not anyone's business as to when and why Carter Hart separated from his sports psychologist and the effect it had on him and his game. That's just no one's business. If he was a regular person, no one would think twice about it but because he's a hockey player suddenly people get the right to comment on what they think his mental state is at even say all of this is true say the reason he's been lacking is because he separated from his sports psychologist whatever it still doesn't matter because it's literally no one's business how he's doing mentally and for what reason he's feeling that way I would venture a guess as to say that Carter Hart is probably playing badly because he has absolutely nobody in front of him the Philadelphia Flyers Much like if the Buffalo Sabres weren't on a losing streak that's old enough to drink in some parts of the world, we would only be talking about the Philadelphia Flyers and how bad they are. But because Buffalo currently needs to blow that thing up from the inside out and literally start from scratch or just go down to the AHL, whichever you would prefer at this point, Sabres fans, no one's talking about the fact that the Flyers just are not a good hockey team. You could have a brick wall in nets. And if you put that product on the ice, you're not going to win. The laws of literally all sport is like, well, if you're going to be that like objectively horrible, you don't get to blame your goalie. You don't get to bring in your goalie's sports psychology. No, give him some help. And also this journalist, um, I'm reluctant to call him that because as Dua pointed out, this is a gossip tabloid disguised as some fancy analytical piece of media should be ashamed for trying to spin this narrative as the reason the Flyers are in the position they are. I think it's disgusting and deplorable. And the fact that that was allowed to go to press, questionable for an editor, like beyond beyond the writer at this point, for an editor to read that piece and go, yup, this is valid to be putting out in the media. Yeah, I have no issue having this go to the public. That is the problem. And that is how you know that this is a reflection of the culture in terms of mental health and hockey culture, especially in men's hockey culture. Because if we were where we like to think we are, whosoever's desk that landed on, it would have ended there. But because we still are in a culture where we are expecting men to be feeling less, play through whatever life circumstance they're in, that's what has enabled us to reach this point where this article was released to the public. And I think until we accept that, this isn't going to get any better. Yeah, definitely. And both of you guys' comments, like, it's not our business to be commenting on this. This is not something you use as analysis when it comes to how players are performing or how teams are performing. And I actually wanted to connect this to the NBA because last year in the bubble when Siakam was going through his troubles, people were putting his mental health and his confidence and things like that as a reason why, but you don't know how that player is feeling. You don't know what's going on. You're not in a position to be talking about it. So there's really no reason why this should be considered journalism and why this should have even been published in the first place. I completely agree. I think we teeter on a very fine line in terms of what is journalism, and this is very much not it. This messed me up because it's just like, is this the industry we're going into? 
where speculation on someone's mental well-being is okay. I hope that we can be the change makers who quite literally make this change in the league and make it not okay to guess on what someone's mental well-being is at and take shots at it. That already shouldn't be okay and it shouldn't be on us to make it not okay. But some people just lack basic human decency. So moving on from that, I'm going to throw it to Karina now for some basketball. Let's play some basketball. If you understood that joke, I love you. Thank you, Dua, for that incredible transition. As always, let's start our NBA segment off with our Toronto Raptors update. First, a sigh of relief. Kyle Lowry is still a Raptor. Honestly, for me, I felt more emotional than I thought I would be, especially when I was so sure that he was going to be gone, especially at that game after where he threw deuces up to the camera. I was in shambles. I was like, he's gone. I can't do this. Um, It's funny because you can understand it from a basketball perspective, but the emotional attachment that you have to your players is actually a really strong feeling. So ladies, how do we feel about Lowry still being in a Raptors jersey for the second half of the season? As I'm answering this, I'm reading Norm's The Players Tribune article. We're going to get to that. I was reading I was about to cry. the, The goosebumps I have right now and the feelings, like I... Wow, if I'm this emotional over this, I don't even want to know what I would have been like if I was reading this from a Kyle Lowry perspective. Because yes, Norm, not that you're listening, but hi, we love you. (laughs) He will always be part of history, and that is undeniable. And he will always be etched in Raptors fans' memories. But I don't think he meant what Kyle Lowry means to Toronto culture. Not only to the team, but at this point, Kyle Lowry is part of this city. Like he is part of the fabric. He represents the fabric of who we are and what we stand for as a city and subsequently as a fan base, which then leads into as a country, which is ironic because he's from Philly and we hate them, but it's besides the point. We'll forgive you for that one. I was shocked. So me and Karina were together on uh, NBA trade deadline day, and we'll get into a little bit of that later. But every time my phone went off, I could feel the vibration in, in my fanny pack. I just stopped breathing. I was like, this is it. In the middle of downtown Toronto, we're just going to have a mental breakdown and have a funeral. And it was 3.02. And I tweeted from the Unmentioned account. I'm like, it's 3.02 and Kyle Lowry is still a Raptor. And someone was like, if you just jinxed it, I'm going to be. And in my head, I was like, if I jinx it, I'll just, I'll leave. I'll show myself out. I'll do that to myself. Thank you very much. An extreme sense of relief. Uh, my friend so kindly pointed out, he's like, yeah, he's still here. They'll probably sign him to a two-year 50 mil extension and then trade him with that. And I was like, I don't need that kind of negativity in my life. Thank you very much. You can you can keep that to yourself for now, sir. Um, so yeah, those are my thoughts. When we found out, I was in lab. So I was in David Singh, shout out David Singh, favorite sports net writer and lab instructor. Yeah, I was in his lab and you could just see us all constantly refreshing our phones and refreshing Twitter. And there was this huge collective sigh of relief when we got that watch notification. It was an amazing feeling to know that he's still with us. So I remember on the day of, because we're all walking you through the vibes on that day for us, I was editing last week's episode of Ballbusters. Listen to it now on Spotify. Okay, so I thought that we would have a conclusion around four or five o'clock. And so I was trying to get my editing done 
as before then, because I knew I wouldn't be able to work after, because at that point we all knew he was going to get traded. And that was kind of the only outcome for us at that point. There was no chance he was going to stay. We all hoped he would stay, but I don't think we thought that was going to happen. And so I remember Norm getting traded and I was so upset. And I was literally, I was affected more than I thought I would. And I remember tweeting, Norm just left and I don't know how I'm going to be when Kyle is gone. But I was sitting in my bed editing this episode and every time my phone would buzz, my heart would skip a beat and I had to check it every single time. It was so annoying. And I was talking to my best friend, shout out Donnie, and he said, put your phone. Ma'am, I'm sitting right here. Casey's my number one best friend. I love Casey. I have a Casey Dobson fan club, if anyone was wondering. Inquiries to join can be sent to the unbenched email. All right. My friend texts me. He goes, I was telling him about how I couldn't edit. And he says, turn your phone off and check back at 3.15. So I did that. And I got through my editing, almost done. And I opened my phone at 3.15 And Kyle Lowry is still a Raptor. This is kind of a tough situation though because the state the Raptors are in right now and I think this was more of a move for the fans and for the culture than it was for the team. And honestly, I think we're at a point where you're allowed to do that because of how entrenched this man is into our culture. Masai said in a press conference, I know you guys wanted the farewell story. Sorry, you're going to have to postpone that. All these stories are going to have to be postponed now. That scared the bejesus out of me because he said postpone, not cancel. Does that mean this is going to eventually happen? Do I have to have anxiety for the summer now? Yes, I'm sorry, but you do. (laughs) It's okay. We'll get to that when we get there. I just want to live a simple life where I love no one but Casey Dobson and I just edit Ball Busters episodes all the time and let unpaid internships exploit me for free. That's all I want to do. But Kyle Lowry and the Raptors really got to go like pew pew to all my dreams. Well, we did lose a Raptor. Norman Powell. He was traded to the Portland Trailblazers for Gary Trent Jr. and Rodney Hood. And now, like Casey said, Casey and I were together on trade deadline day, which is, you know, a great day to put my phone away. (laughs) But when you're hanging out with a sport media kid, you already know we're going to have everything as it comes in. And so we actually have a story (laughs) about when the Norman Powell news actually dropped. Casey, do you want to tell it or do you want me to say it? You can punctuate it with your feelings, but I'll give everyone like the the nice visuals. Okay, great. So (laughs) we're like sitting in Nathan Phillips Square and we start walking back to the Eaton Center because um, we had to pee. So we walk into an Eaton Center bathroom and nothing had happened yet. It had been like relatively calm. The most eventful part of the day was I almost fell through a hole, which is a whole other story. It was horrifying. So Krina closes the bathroom stall door. And it's like, as the door clicked, my phone vibrates and it's TSN notification Norman Powell traded. So I'm at the other end of the Eaton Center bathroom. Krina took a stall on the other side. And I'm like, Krina, like I'm yelling in this public location. I'm like, Norm was traded. The second she said my name, I knew something happened. I literally replied, I was like, oh God, like what happened? So I like run over to her stall. So I'm talking to her like through the door. This woman in the stall next to her like comes out and looks at me like I have overheads because me and Karina are like yelling. We're talking about basketball as Karina is trying to pee. 
Um, and yeah, so that was how uh, we found out about the news. And then we walked out and we were also there with Josh who was standing in the hallway. And we were like, I wonder if he knows. And he looked at us and we're just shaking his head. And it was like, okay, he knows. Um, Josh standing there sad. with his Siakam jersey. Yeah. So yeah, that that's that story. Also, I loved how you're like, should should I tweet it or should you tweet it from the unbenched account? That was as she's peeing. I'm like, do you want want to tweet it or do you want me to tweet it? And I think that's probably what sent the woman over the edge when she was looking at me like I was crazy. Um, (laughs) Tell me you're a sport media student without telling me you're a sport media student. Exactly. And now, guys, if you haven't seen it, Norman Powell dropped an article thanking Toronto on Players Tribune. I read it while we were doing the NHL segment. I almost cried. I'm emotional. emotional. I'm at the part where Damar and Kyle took him on a shopping spree. Yeah. I'm not okay. I would just like to highlight that all of us read this as we're recording on the segments that we weren't a part of. I read it during football. (laughs) (laughs) So as emotional as it was, we did get two players in return for Powell. Let's talk about them a little bit. Aside from his good looks. Before we talk about them. Yes. Can we talk about Karina being thirsty on the timeline for Gary trying well, to Well, we are going <laughs> to. Oh, we're going to get to. Okay, good. As long as we're exposing you for that. Because, okay. oh my Lord, child. Anyway. <laughs> okay, I well, guess we're, we're exposing you They knew what now. they were doing to me. <laughs> it's no surprise. Gary Trent Jr. is a very nice looking man. Okay. <laughs> and I don't normally post things like that on the timeline, but come on. Those bangs. Aside from his good looks, Gary Trent Jr. I'm sorry, the black and white pictures. <laughs> we have a we have a Kelly Oubre Jr. Guys, we have a Kelly Oubre Jr. You guys can't see this, but Casey has literally walked out of the frame. <laughs> she can't deal with us. I can see her in the reflection of her microphone. Casey left the chat. She's just standing there breathing. All right, I hope you guys enjoyed that. But aside from his good looks. Gary Trent Jr. is a young guy with a nice jump shot. He gives you a little bit of size on defense that wasn't there as much with Powell. I think he's the guy that you look to keep after this season and you look to develop. What do you guys think of this, as Dua just put it, Kelly Oubre edition? Matt's been going off so far. Not that the Raptors are going off, but yes, Karina, deep breath. I also like how Karina's like, he's a young guy. And the subtext of that is it wouldn't be too weird. He's 22 years old. Do the math. That's all I have to say. The other guy in the trade, Rodney Hood, he's 28 years old. So he's not as young, but he's not that old. And he's a guy that people have just been looking at as a salary matcher in this deal. So he's been a little bit underrated, I feel. But I think that he's been pretty good for the Raps so far. Um, I'm going to give a quick shout out to my friend Samson from Raptors Republic because he's mentioned a few times about Rodney Hood that he's really good at creating shots for himself, something that some of our other guys, like, for example, Yudo Watanabe, they don't really do. And if the Raps never get their serviceable center, Rodney Hood may become more than just a salary filler. And maybe you look at giving him an extension this summer. At this point, who knows? I think he's just a guy that you have to wait and see how it goes out. He's a bit of a unique player. It's all going to roll out I guess and another thing is that the Raptors have not won a single game since March 24 since that all-women broadcast is it a coincidence who knows but I'd like to say it isn't as bad as it seems there's been some weird losses this season for example we lost by four points to the Phoenix Suns the other night and I feel like I feel a lot 
better about that loss than I did to the blowout to the Detroit Pistons, which was just painful. The Raptors underperforming in third quarters is certainly not helping. Looking at you against, I think it was the Pistons, they had like 10 points in the third quarter, which is atrocious. And there's not enough help there to support our core. So especially, for example, Bembry and Watson, they've been in health and safety protocols for a couple of games now. I think their absence is, you can feel it. I don't even know how far under 500 the Raptors are at this point, because if I check the record, it'll just be painful for me to see that number. Because especially since they are a competitive team, but they've been hit with so many obstacles at this point that you can't really hope for any sort of playoff push at this point. And I guess we've now segued into the lottery pick discussion or the fade for Cade movement, or I think there was another one mobilized for Mobley. People on Raptors Twitter are getting very that's excited. a that's a stretch. I'm sorry. Like I get fade for Cade is the mobile. No, no. Whoever came <laughs> up with that, no. I'm sorry. Incorrect. I'm not sure. I'm not sure who came up with it, but it's definitely someone on Raptors Twitter. Whoever and came up with it, I have questions. <laughs> mobilize, mobilize Mo- for Mobley. That's the word you chose to use. It makes no sense. Now. To be clear, I am not endorsing tanking. At this point, I don't think they can even tank on purpose. The losses just seem to be coming. But I want—I did want to dis- discuss like a pro and con of getting a high pick in the lottery because while it can definitely help our team, I don't think it will solve everything. If we look at the top two picks, Cade Cunningham and Evan Mobley, Cade Cunningham is a 6'8 point guard, which is good for size, but he's not a center. Evan Mobley is a seven-foot center. So even if we get a player like this in the draft, the Raptors also have a lack of depth. We need a solid bench to support that starting five. And I feel like that's a problem that's been glaringly obvious this year because our starting five, they used to be the bench mob. But when they transitioned to being in the starting position, we didn't have a solid bench to fall back on. And I feel like that's been hurting us a lot. It has a lot to do with the core problems. Mobley, I think, would be a good addition to that. Also, when Karina said he's seven feet tall, I literally, like, they just need this man to stand in front of the net and just swat the ball away. Yeah, you guys heard it here first. We just need Evan Mobley to stand in front of the bucket and just swat everything. That's our analysis. So that's enough for the Raptors. Let's go into a little bit of a trade recap. Which one was your favorite trade from last week? Tell me why. It's going to be no surprise which one is mine, but I want to hear your guys' favorite trade. Mine's Aaron Gordon. Damn it, do I? (laughs) Oh, sorry. It's okay, Um, go ahead. My favorite and Krita's favorite is Aaron Gordon. I've seen articles saying that the Nuggets are the strongest team in the NBA now, and I think that's a stretch, but I think it's a good move. Aaron Gordon combined with Jokic, who's been possibly the best NBA player this season. If we said today, like, end the season now, cut it off, and we had to name an MVP, it would be Nikola Jokic. And then Jamal Murray, who's kind of coming back into his game now, He had a rough start to the season, but now we're finally seeing him kind of being the player we've seen him be before. And so I think those three combined is a good move, but also I think Jamal Murray and Aaron Gordon is a crazy duo. Like that would be amazing. But anyways, Karina, why is this your favorite trade? Two reasons. First reason, I called this trade when I was working on the trade deadline article with Lucas from the intermission. 
Uh, shout out Lucas. He said Aaron Gordon to Denver for Gary Harris and another young guy. And when it came out, so many people were tagging me. They're like, Krina, you called it. And even yesterday, shout out Evan Gualberto, friend of the pod, on bouncing around. He was like, Krina called it. I thought I was smart, but Krina called this trade. So, you know, I feel a little gassed up, not going to lie. But also the second reason why I like this trade is because of the fit. Aaron Gordon and Nikola Jokic make each other's games a lot easier. I think Jokic being willing to pass, giving him those backdoor cuts, giving him spacing, it's probably going to be really fun for Aaron Gordon. I know he had a great debut for the Nuggets and his defensive presence as well, I think is great. And he's learning the offense. So this is overall a great fit, in my opinion, just because Aaron Gordon can play. He's a great two-way player. And this trade for me is good all around for Denver. I think it certainly fills a space that they were missing before and it, it brings them back up in that discussion of who who can make a push in the west although like you said do before like i don't think they're the strongest team in the nba right now but they they definitely made their case better next andre drummond so he did a buyout he signed with the lakers and they say that he's going to be their starting center which puts montrez harrell as their backup center and Marcus Gasol as their third. Now, this is interesting to me because they said they won't do a buyout with Marcus Gasol, but do you think that Mark might be moving somewhere else if his role gets minimized even more now? I forget the numbers on that contract, but I don't think they're numbers you want to be paying for a guy who's third on your depth chart in his position, especially when there are teams who would give you any missing pieces you need to get that because as we're seeing with the Raptors, they miss having him around. Um, oh my God, imagine trade him back to the Raptors. Oh, Watch. there's already been rumblings. The second oh. Andre Drummond signed with the Lakers, Raptors, the Raptors Twitter was like, bring Mark back home. Do it. At this point, please, I will give you my left kidney for us to, to have a serviceable center. But yeah, no, I think to have someone that you're paying that amount of money to sit third on your depth chart, it's not a great financial decision in terms of management. I get the NBA and the cap are very different than other leagues in terms of a soft cap and whatever, but I just don't see anyone being willing to pay that amount of money for a guy that's not going to get minutes. Yeah. And even with Andre Drummond, it was so funny because people were slandering him, maybe as they should. But when he signed with the Lakers... People started saying that, oh, it's not fair. The Lakers are going out and getting everyone. And I don't really understand this take because if you're going to slander him, why is it unfair for the Lakers to sign him? And in addition to that, everyone's, everyone's argument about Andre Drummond is that he's a great rebounder. And yes, he rebounds. But are we going to take into account that he's a poor finisher at the rim? He's shooting a career worst. 47.7% from the field essentially walks to those rebounds every game. And like, it's fine that the Lakers got him, but let's be realistic here. It's not unfair. And that leads me on to the Blake Griffin situation in Brooklyn, because everyone was saying how Griffin is washed. You know, he can't be at the level that he was before he signs with the nets. And all of a sudden, again, the same argument, it's unfair. Brooklyn's getting everyone. They're a super team. Same thing with LaMarcus Aldridge. This argument doesn't make any sense to me because none of these players are at their best. None of these players are at the level that they were before. Don't slander them and then say it's unfair that they're getting it. That segues into the concept of championship teams and the weirdness of branding super teams as villains. I've seen people really get into it on Twitter and even like analysts and things like that. 
It's like the whole point of the NBA championship is to add pieces to your team that make them good enough to make a push in the playoffs, make them better than everyone else to get that championship. That's why it always bugs me when people say that Kawhi carried us to the championship because that's quite literally not what happened. The only reason we were able to do that is because Kawhi had great pieces around him. We had Gasol, we had Ibaka, we had Lowry, we had all those players. And if you're not doing that, are you really going to be saying that you want a mediocre team to make a run to the finals? No, you need those superstars and you need those extra pieces to help you get there. And then labeling Brooklyn as a villain, I don't get it because they're having fun. You may not be having fun, but they're having fun. Christina, you're nodding. What are your thoughts on that? I just think it comes off kind of bitter because people saying it's unfair, like it's not unfair. They're not breaking any rules. There's nothing wrong with wanting to make your team as good as possible, which is what they're doing, which is why it's weird that people are bitter over it, making them out to be villains because they're not villains. They're just good and you're mad about it. That's it. Yeah, exactly. And if you want any indication of what the Brooklyn Nets think about your opinion, just look at Steve Nash doing that weird roar thing in the presser. That was... <laughs> no, don't look at that. That's weird and scary. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a weird sound. What I have to say to everyone who hates the Nets, you're mad. If... And I have beef with Raptors Twitter about this because they just love to hate on the Nets god damn if this was the raptors you wouldn't see them complaining and that goes for every other team in the nba like every other fan base that is complaining about this saying the like super teams aren't fair they're taking everyone the lakers and that's like all of this if that was your team you wouldn't be mad so please sit down. Looking at you, Warriors fans. They're just always mad about something. They need somebody to be angry at to compensate for the fact that their organization fell from the best team in the NBA to the bottom of the pits. They think they're going to get anywhere with Steph Curry. Love the man. Beautiful man. Beautiful family. One man does not make a team. It is the pieces around him. And that's exactly what the Lakers and the Nets their mentality and what they're doing, what they're looking at. And you know what? If Twitter and fan bases want to be mad, be mad. See who wins. That's a mic drop moment right there. All right. So moving on to the last part of this segment, something that I wanted to include because I think it's important. Players and teams and organizations, they're starting to get their vaccines, their COVID-19 vaccines. And I wanted to talk about the importance of showing solidarity when it comes to this. So some of the some of the teams so far have been the Clippers, the Lakers, the Pelicans, Hawks, and the Trailblazers. I think out of all those, the Hawks and the Trailblazers had I think all of their players vaccinated, or at least most of them. And then also Jaron Jackson Jr. of the Grizzlies was the first player on that team to get vaccinated. He promoted that on his social media. And Shea Gilgis Alexander and the Dort of OKC. I'm sure everyone saw that really, really adorable picture yesterday of Shay holding Dort's hand when he was getting vaccinated because he was afraid of the needle. I thought that was adorable. So all of those people can be added to that list of who's gotten vaccines. There's been so much uncertainty that many top athletes across any sport have been showing for this vaccine, which has been a little bit problematic, I think. And I think that's get showing solidarity and getting the vaccine is the most important thing right now. It's how we get out of the situation that we've been living in this last year. 
And the fact that athletes have some of the biggest platforms and the biggest influences out there, I really hope that more teams continue to push the idea of getting vaccinated. Absolutely. I think it's so important to push the narrative of standing in solidarity with the vaccinations because we've seen that there's so much back talk about it and misconceptions and conspiracies and it's like a flu shot. Grow up. We waited really long for this and I it kind of disappoints me a little bit when I see an, a top athlete or someone with big influence come out and say that they're not getting the vaccine or they're not really sure of it, especially since when they say things like they just made it now when that's not true because this technology has been in the works for like 30 years. It's just been accelerated due to the pandemic. And that really disappoints me because if we're ever going to get out of this, we need those people of high influence to kind of establish the same grounds. I'm hopeful with with these NBA teams that are promoting it. And I think that the more we start to see it happen, hopefully the more people will come around to it. I don't know about you guys, but I miss going to live sports games. I need to go back. It's been long enough. And with that, I'm going to throw it to Christina with overtime. Go ahead. Okay, we'll be talking about the 2021 ISU World Figure Skating Championships that took place last week in Stockholm, Sweden from March 22nd to the 28th. Athletes arrived on the 22nd, but actual events began on the 24th. In the first episode of Ballbusters, we talked a little bit about the controversy around the world champs and how with everything going on with COVID-19, it might not be the best time, especially in the way that the ISU had configured its COVID-19 health and safety protocols without a quarantine period upon arrival and commercial flights and all of that. But world happened. So we're going to be talking about the performances of our athletes today. We're going to start off with ice dance, but I am going to talk about the free skate because it was my favorite part personally and a lot of Canadians' favorite part, just because Piper Gillies and Paul Poirier are our favorite ice dancers since Tessa and Scott. I know it's sad. She was like drawing like tears coming out of her eyes with her fingers. No, yeah. Obviously, we miss Tessa and Scott, but Piper and Paul, I think they bring a sort of elegance to their ice dancing and effortless emotional appeal. The way that they can convey feeling through their ice dance is something that a lot of people lack in the sport. It's hard for a lot of athletes to be able to do that. And the fact that they can is art as well as it is athletic ability. So they came in with a bronze, they came in third. This past weekend and that was partially because Gabriela Papadakis and Guillaume Cizeron sat this year out. They are the French ice dancers. They said it was limited training time because of COVID and so they wanted to focus on Beijing and the Winter Games instead but they are the 2018 Olympic silver medalist who came in second to Canada and they are also four-time world champions so because they sat it out it was kind of free game for ice dance this year and American skaters Madison Hubble and Zach Donahue ended up taking second, while Victoria Sinitsina and Nikita Kotsalopov came in first. It's worth mentioning also that Sinitsina and Kotsalopov are Russians, and the Russians kind of dominated the world this year. But moving on from Ice Dance, okay, can we just talk about, because I feel like the men's singles category was the most talked about event. And Karina, I know you watched Nathan Chen's performance. So Nathan Chen, just for context before I ask how he felt about it. He's an American figure skater. He's 21 years old. 
This is his third world title in a row. So he hasn't lost a competition since the 2018 Olympic Games when he came in fifth after an unfortunate short program. That being said, he was still new to the game. He was 18 years old at the time, and now he's 21 and he's a star. It's very obvious watching him skate that he has the technical precision and the artistry. Krino, what did you think? All the men, they were great. But the second that Nathan Chen stepped onto the ice, you can t- you could tell that he was on like a whole different level. Um, like you mentioned, his preciseness, it's like insane. Like his technique, like even as someone who doesn't even watch figure skating on the regular, everything was so tight and precise. Like his air and his presence is just amazing. Yeah, 100%. And I think it goes to show that somebody who doesn't typically watch too much figure skating, they can tell that he's on another level. I feel like it's partially because of the fact that he makes it look so easy. The way that he skates in his style is very casual. It looks like he's just soaring by, like it's not a big deal. But it really, really, really is. Because in this routine, he pulled off five quad jumps. And a quadruple jump in figure skating is a jump that has four rotations in the air. And he made it look so easy. Okay, I'll talk about this one bit in his routine. He did a triple axel and then right into a choreo sequence. And the way that the transition between the triple axel to the choreo sequence was so seamless just goes to show how good of a skater and how good of an artist he is on the ice because there's no visible prep between his jumps and his spins it just looks so natural to him his style is very casual very effortless while his long-term rival Yuzuru Hanyu who is a Japanese figure skater his style is flamboyant dramatic He's also very show-stopping to watch, but in a different way. And you can even see it in their costumes. Where Nathan Chen was simple, it was black, just very yeah. elegant. While Yuzuru Han used the bejeweled, crystallized, it was like an aquamarine blue-green color. He's literally saying, look at me when you see Yuzuru on the ice. Han Yu was sitting in first in the short program earlier on in the world and ended up finishing third overall. He's 26 years old. He's a two-time Olympic champion. And Nathan Chen looks up to him so much. And it's got to be interesting, I think, competing against somebody who you've looked up to for so long in your sport. And I'm sure you can kind of parallel that to people in basketball or like in hockey. I can even parallel it to Tennis. When Naomi Osaka played against Serena Williams for the first time in the U.S. Open final, or like even Bianca Andreescu playing against Serena Williams, they always mentioned, wow, I'm playing against my idol. I feel like you see that a lot in hockey. Given the time span that players tend to play, you will see the players that were kind of coming into the league maybe 18 years ago, 19 years ago, and were the new guys, the new guys of now kind of looked up to them playing. A lot of those young guys end up growing up and coming into the league and playing with their idols. I think a really good example of that is Austin Matthews and Shane Doan. They played against each other and Austin Matthews posted about it when Shane Doan retired. He was like, I grew up watching this guy playing and he was my idol and he was the big guy we had in Arizona. And it was surreal for me to be playing against him every single time I played against him. It's crazy because you see that parallel a lot in sports where people will be playing against their idols from when they were younger people they watched growing up even with Tessa and Scott they're figure skating royalty and they are the most decorated athletes in the world so obviously a lot of these younger athletes coming in you come in and you see these athletes 
that you've been watching since you were younger and now you're competing against them obviously no one's competing against Tessa and Scott anymore mentally you got to be really hard on yourself I feel like if that you were in that situation yeah Chen said it's an honor to be able to get to know him sort of within these past few years and uh, um, compete against him and Han Yu is somebody who goes out and gives it his all and when he's completely on he's stunning but when he's not on his full game he can be messy so yeah he took the third second place went to Yuma Kagiyama who is a 17 year old Japanese figure skater sixth place in male singles went to Keegan Messing who is the only Canadian in the male single category he placed sixth but hit a career best of 270.26 in the long program I won't lie I didn't love it I think he is a very very talented skater there's no way that I could ever do any of that stuff. But I think the buildup was just not there. And I don't know if that was a choreography program or the fact that I didn't think that the music went well with the program or with the choreo. I just felt like it kind of plateaued and stayed on the same level the entire time. But Krina watched it. So what would you say? Yeah, like I see what you're saying. I mean, to me, like I told you this off the pod, but when he went down and he put like his face like just above the ice and he was just kind of like going around, I was like, what is he doing? Like, what? (laughs) That was was like, whoa. That being said, he is, like you said, an amazing figure skater and he's very, very talented as are all of you athletes. And that performance won Canada two Olympic spots in the 2022 Beijing Winter Games. So Messing definitely did something right there. Speaking of Olympics, the 2021 Tokyo Games have announced that they will not have overseas spectators, which is very, very reasonable considering the worldwide pandemic. But that also means Olympic broadcasters like CBC and NBC have to make adjustments in their coverage and their production plans for these games. And so CBC said that they have 130 staff members flying out to Tokyo and correct me if I'm wrong, Krina, because Krina actually works at CBC. <laughs> but MVC has reduced their on-site Olympic team by 10%. The 10% will be staying home and reporting from the state. I wanted to get your opinions on reporting on sports virtually, because I think it's still a huge shift in the industry um, within the past year. So how do you feel? I noticed you have like a note about the Raptors. I just want to mention like CBC real quick this season with all the winter stuff going on. Basically what they do, they'll set up a booth in the studio. They'll put like a large TV with the event and then they'll have the play-by-play and the color commentators watching the TV and commentating at the same time. And they've even been brought in people virtually from Calgary to look at the same thing. And it's definitely interesting like they do a good job but I still feel like it's a bit different because we're all essentially watching the same thing if that makes sense on tv Mm -hmm. whereas if they were there in person maybe they'd have a different sense of what to talk about if that makes sense um and like with the raptors I have mixed feelings about them because like the actual people who are broadcasting I have mixed feelings about them whether it's virtual or in person but I won't go too much into that. <laughs> um, but overall, like, it's been okay. I feel like we're used to it by now, but when it comes to things like replays of fouls, they're essentially seeing the same thing that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. So I could 
on a like on a foul that happens on the tv they're not there to see it happen in action so we're seeing the same thing so it is different in that sense which is why it was probably better in person but at this point we're used to it we've adjusted all right so that is it for overtime and for this episode this week thank you all for joining us we hope you enjoyed i hope that i didn't sound too dumb like i do every week we have last week's episode and the week before that on spotify apple podcasts and anywhere else you get your podcasts so definitely check those out if you haven't already all the links to our instagram our twitter our website will all be in the description so definitely check those out we also have merch casey's was in the mail last week mine's in the mail this week we look amazing on clothes and you should get us on clothes we have the regular classic unbench merch we have ball busters merch we have stickers we have the queen of bomb sticker we have everything you could possibly want so check that out and we will see you next week thank you for joining us hey thanks bye, bye. bye.